Straight Talk Live, exploring human, digital, and social transformations. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. I am one of your co-hosts, Rick Snyder. I am the CEO of Invisible Edge, the author of Decisive Intuition, and proud co-founder of this amazing podcast that was launched right at the beginning of pretty almost a year ago when COVID was just getting started here. We decided we want to have a forum to have the conversations we need to be having um, that we're not seeing in our media landscape. And so this is a very straight talking kind of show. And within that, um, in that alignment, I want to introduce you my co-host, my co-host, Af Maholtra. Af, take it away. Thank you, Rick. Welcome everyone for uh, another fantastic uh, STL, Straight Talk Live show. I am, of course, also privileged to be the co-creator and, and founder of um, Straight Talk Live, and and just been absolutely enchanted and thrilled by the journey that we've been on over the last year. And of course, I am also the co-founder of Growth Enabler, an AI uh, technology business I built five years ago. Uh, today is a very special day once again. Another great guest, um, Milo Jones, who I've got to know recently over the past few months. Um, what a fantastic chap, human being, intellectual, and um, he'll, of course, introduce himself momentarily. Um, I'd like you to think about the episode today quite seriously because um, anticipating strategic surprise is at a grand level, a geopolitical level, um, a topic of discussion, but actually at a human level, at a personal level, given all of our sessions we've had so far, our lives are, are governed by a lot of uncertainty right now. And we've got to learn to deal with that uncertainty and that crisis and that chaos in some way, shape or form and, and come out better at the end. And if you have even a tiny bit of ability to anticipate what may happen or, you know, understand this concept of strategic surprise at a personal animal business or um, higher level, then life could be a little bit easier. And so we will dig into a lot of questions with this incredible guest today. Rick, why don't I send the baton back to you to mm -hmm. introduce our guest and let's crack on. You got it. And as Af, you were mentioning, this is one of the most important conversations we can be having is how do we anticipate the next surprise? Is there actually a way to do that? Can we start to recognize patterns? What have people who've been studying this learned about in terms of that? And we have one of those experts in our midst right now, Mr. Milo Jones. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. Thank you, Rick, and thank you, Af, and I am very excited to be here. Um, just so you guys know, many of you are probably tuned in and you're expecting to hear a cybersecurity expert, which I'm actually not. Um, but I did do my PhD uh, on the internal culture of the CIA and how strategic surprises happen. Because it occurred to me that, gosh, uh, I would like to know how such things occur. Um, and please note, I'm not saying why they occur. I mean, there, there was a big debate after, I'm from New York and after 9-11, there was a huge debate and, and the 9-11 commission came to certain conclusions about how this happened. Mm -hmm. And um, I took issue with those conclusions. And so I decided mm -hmm. to look more deeply into the topic. Um, so, and Milo, can we start there? Actually, um, sure. what what? And I, we know you're an author as well. Uh, you're very accomplished in in the fields of study, uh, many fields of study. And what I want to ask you about is what exactly is strategic surprise? How do you define that? What? How do we wrap our heads around what ah, that actually means? Okay, so 
I'm going to first give you the, I'm good academic, right? So I'm going to first give you the, the definition, mm. but then I'll give you some examples. So mm. the definition uh, that my co-author, Philippe Silverzan and I used is the, the sudden realization that you're operating on the basis of an erroneous assessment of the world, which results in a failure to anticipate a, an event that has a significant interest on your vital interests. That's not very helpful. I looked at things like, why did the Cuban Missile Crisis happen? I mean, we did, it did turn out okay, but the very fact that it arose as a crisis was a surprise. It indicated a surprise. Why did the CIA fail to anticipate the fall of the Shah of Iran? Why did the CIA then fail to anticipate the collapse of the USSR? Uh, in my opinion, they, some people differ on that, but I'll stand by that. Or how do things like 9-11 happen? So big shocks, here you have an organization with some ground rules, but not as many ground rules as corporations and pretty big budgets and very smart people. And how is it that even with all those advantages, seemingly about once a decade, the United States got blindsided. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know why. And very specifically, I admit, I wanted to know why 9-11 happened or how 9-11 and if I may, I'll, I'll get into a little more theory about this stuff, if that's mm -hmm. okay, Rick. Yeah, um, please, please. Yeah. So when you look at strategic surprise as an academic or, or, uh, or someone really into the topic, you, you tend to encounter some explanations for how they happen. And the first one is, well, gosh, um, anecdotal explanations. Gee, somebody messed up. That, that You don't learn much from that. Mm -hmm. Then there's a whole school of thought about bureaucratic mess ups, like silos of information where one group didn't talk to another group. So surprise happened. Then there's a whole body that I'm sure you're familiar with about the psychology of how surprises happen. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the idea that, oh, no, 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 no. We weren't really surprised. It's that the politicians didn't listen. I wasn't interested in those cases and mm -hmm. I wasn't satisfied with those other explanations. When you really dig into it, what interested me is cases where those responsible for looking out for surprise were actually surprised. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And therefore you don't get into the warning, I warned the politicians and they didn't listen. Those, those are real, those happen, but they're not as interesting. I mm -hmm. wanna know how is it that when a nation or a company or an individual tries to draw on a sort of lizard brain watching for danger, mm -hmm. how does that fail? And why does that fail? Mm -hmm. And the first thing you come across is the theory that the 9-11 Commission loved. And it was uh, by a woman named, it was developed by a woman named Roberta Wallstetter in the 50s. She was the wife of the more famous mathematician, Albert Wallstetter, who worked uh, at Rand Corporation in the early days on nuclear strategy. Mm. And she got to California in uh, Santa Monica in the 50s and said, gosh, you know, Albert, I'm born. I think I'd like to do a PhD. And he sort of said, yes, yes, honey, please go ahead. You talk to my colleagues at Rand. They'll help you. Mm -hmm. Very, you know, 50s patronizing. And she said, okay, thank you. And she had an Air Force colonel supervising her. And he said, what do you want to work on? And she said, I think I want to work on uh, Pearl Harbor. And he says, yeah, okay, go ahead. There's the library. Mm -hmm. 
And he didn't pay much attention to her until she turned in the first draft. Mm. And then her phone rang. And he said, Roberta, this is your supervisor, Colonel so-and-so. Are there any other copies of this document that you've sent me? And she says, uh, yeah, you know, I kept two backups, use carbon paper. He said, I'm sending over military police. You are not authorized to possess this document. Hmm. <laughs> this was 50s America, a little bit paranoid. But her key insight was that strategic surprises happen as a first order explanation, not because of what everybody thought, which was that you failed to collect the right information. She said, strategic surprises happen because you fail to separate, wait for it, you probably, your listeners have heard this phrase before, you fail to separate signal from noise. Mm -hmm. The information to anticipate the surprise is collected, but it's not properly sorted. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, okay, if that's the case, how do you sort signal from noise? Mm -hmm. And she said, you do it with hypotheses. So if you fit, in other words, with questions. Mm -hmm. So if you're failing to ask the right questions, mm -hmm. you're going to get surprised. Mm -hmm. And therefore, she said, and the 9-11 commission re repeated, strategic surprises happen because of a failure of imagination. This happened in the 50s, and it took her about five years to get her work declassified, and it was finally published by Stanford University Press in a book called Pearl Harbor, Warning and Decision. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that's why I picked Stanford University Press to update <clears throat> her theory, mm. because I was dissatisfied with this failure of imagination idea, that this was sort of wheeled out as the the deus ex machina that explains everything. And politicians, the 9-11 Commission particularly, they love the phrase failure of imagination. Can you guess why? It doesn't really tell you anything. <laughs> it, it's plausible. <laughs> it doesn't tell you much and there's no one to blame. Mm -hmm. Right? <laughs> Who got fired after 9-11? Mm. Whose, fault, whose fault was it? Oh, well, guess what? You know, we just failed. Failure of imagination. Mm -hmm. I said, hold on. Where, where do failures of imagination come from? Mm -hmm. and, and by the way, how do you fix a failure of imagination? That's an interesting question, too. I'm happy to talk mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. it, there is no There is no magic bullet. But I would suggest that if you don't even diagnose the problem properly, you're certainly not going to solve it. So I said, well, gee, let's, let's think about where failures of imagination come from, and then we can get into uh, how, to, how to fix it. Mm -hmm. Right. But the question is, hold on, are there really failures of imagination? What if you could find people who successfully predicted something like what happened, but got ignored? And I called those people Cassandras. If you can find such people, you don't have a failure of imagination you have a bigger problem of the sociology of knowledge. What kind of questions does our organization permit to be asked? And what kind of people do we hire? And of course, you can always point out, you know, Tom Clancy wrote a novel about people flying planes into buildings. Therefore, you know, we need more Tom Clancy. That's probably not what I mean. <laughs> but what I did, 
did look at is before each major strategic surprise, can we find aspects of identity and culture that shape the sociology of knowledge inside an organization? And if so, you know, what does that mean? How does that mechanism work? So the book traces what you might call a sort of natural selection of accidents, how your identity and culture shapes what information you gather, whom you listen to and whom you don't listen to. Because it turns out before every one of those surprises I talked about, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the collapse of Iran, the fall of the Shah of Iran, the collapse of the USSR and 9-11, there were Cassandras, people who gave warning and got ignored. And if that's the case, you don't have a failure of imagination. You have a problem of identity and culture. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that was sort of my book in a nutshell. I love Milo. that. Oh, go for it. Right. Uh, no, Milo, it sounds a lot, as I hear you, it's a strategic surprise or the Cassandra, the definition of a, a Cassandra sounds a lot like outlier thinkers or mavericks. And if I, if for, for the last what few episodes, we've been talking about the big companies and uh, we refer to them as, I often refer to them as dwindlers or Darwins and disruptors, as, as you know, in our past conversations, mm -hmm. it almost, you can juxtapose or you can translate this entire concept into the big companies and why are we in the situation we're in right now, post pandemic, where the largest companies that, that have been slow to adopt the new ways of doing things or fail to change as fast as they should have are now um, the victims. Uh, of, of the situation that we're in. And of course, the GAFTAM, the Google, Amazon, Facebook, Tencent, Alibaba, you know, and the list goes on these days, uh, continue to reign and dominate. So uh, as I think about what you say, you're talking about it from the point of view of national intelligence um, and the CIA, of course, in your book, but actually it's transferable across uh, so many different uh, agencies in our lives right now. I, I, absolutely. Every, every, I, I worked with insurance companies and others who really want to understand what's going on here. But, but it does start with a couple of mechanisms that I think map pretty well from the intelligence community to the private sector. And it starts with self-selection. Who decides they want to work for you? A certain type of people with a certain mindset. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, once there's that self-selecting group, there's active selection. If you're a major company and you say, we're looking for somebody with an MBA from a top 20 school who's, you know, Six Sigma black belt, uh, who's an out-of-the-box thinker? Get real. You get a bunch of obedient sheep, okay? <laughs> you, you don't get into top 20 MBA programs by being a truly outside the box thinker. In fact, if you even employ that metaphor, by definition, you wouldn't know out of the box thinking if it bit you. So there's self-selection that begins to shape your culture and your ability to anticipate surprise. Who's in your organization? Then there's active selection, you get picked. But then of course, there's all the socialization and training about the way things are done around here the vocabulary you use to define yeah. problems, the, 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 the very idea that what business are we in? Uh, if you're Kodak, you, you were chemists that made pictures. Mm -hmm. And that doomed you after you invented the digital camera. But if you're Fuji, who had chemists, who made film, you pivoted 
to makeup, industrial coatings, and other things. But, mm-hmm. but you, you first have, it, it's a question of identity and culture and self-definition that allows you to even recognize your ability to come up with the resources and processes and values that, that allow you to pivot mm-hmm. in the face of enormous change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, Rick reminded me at the very beginning, I do want to just quickly say that while my book is you know, dry as burnt toast and very academic, and you can all be thinking, yeah, 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 that's CIA. I genuinely believe anyone on this call who's in business today needs to be ready for a period of quite intense reinvention and disorder. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, It's possible that some people are breathing a sigh of relief thinking, well, in the United States anyway, we can put that behind us. Or they're saying, oh, gosh, you know, we were wrong. Whatever they're saying, I would suggest to you that because of digital technologies, change hasn't even started yet. Mm -hmm. Everything's about to change. Mm -hmm. Can I give you an example of why I think that's so? Please. Please, yeah, go ahead. Um, You you go into the the Savoy in London, if you're my kind of guy or girl. And what happens in these Savoys, in, by the way, <laughs> you, 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 you go in and there's a fascinating elevator or in British term lift at the mm-hmm. Savoy. Mm-hmm. It's pretty big. And it's painted a beautiful Chinese red. And it says there's a little plaque that this was the first lift ever in London. And it's got the original warning inside that plaque that says, caution, this is an ascending room, you know, do not be alarmed when it moves. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what to call an elevator. So they called it an ascending room. Right. You tend to conceive of the new technology in terms of the old technology, the thing you're familiar with. Yeah, we don't have the languaging right. yet, right? Yeah, yes. which is why again, in, in Britain, they sometimes you hear older people refer to the radio as a wireless. It's a mm-hmm. wireless telegraph. Mm-hmm. You conceive of the radio as it's like a telegraph, but it doesn't need wires. Mm-hmm. And of course, everybody on the call is saying, yeah, 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 stupid British. I'm not like that. But I would suggest to you, you call this a phone. I don't know what the hell this supercomputer movie camera <laughs> location device is. But as long as you're calling it a phone, uh-huh. you are not going to understand its effects. Right. You are conceiving. It's like calling a car a horseless carriage, which was one of the names for a car. You're just, you're not going to get it. Mm-hmm. And okay. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. No, it's a smartphone. Smartphone, that term is wireless telegraph. Throw it out. As long as you're using it, you're not going to begin to see the vistas of mm-hmm. change that this mm-hmm. technology opens up. Mm-hmm. America and the world are not, the future is not going to be America and the world plus smartphones. The whole ecology of our culture, all our institutions change under the impact of new technologies. They're not additive. If you, if you want additive, watch the intro to the Jetsons. It's, it's a perfectly representative American family from the 1970s in space. Mm-hmm. You know, George Jetson drives the family spaceship mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he goes to a, his work 
with the, with the, the, the moving sidewalk and stuff for people old enough to even know what the heck I'm talking about. But basically it's America in the seventies plus gadgets, but the future is not the present plus gadgets. Everything changes under the impact of those gadgets. And that's why you've got to be anticipating disruption and surprise and change, probably accelerating. Milo, you're making a really good point that one of our former uh, past guests, Brian Collins, uh, really uh, pointed out around languaging. He's a, he's a world-famous brand expert and strategist, and he was saying we don't quite have a language yet for the world we're moving into with COVID and post-COVID. And that's part of the problem is how do we redesign our future if we don't have a language for it yet? And so it's very right. much similar to what I'm hearing you talk about. And so one of my questions for you is this whole signal-to-noise ratio. Um, we have so much noise, maybe more noise than we've ever had right now when it comes to all the media that we're subjected to and all the information and all of our smartphones and these kinds of things that we have everywhere. How do we start to cut through the noise to find the signal if we're trying to anticipate surprise? What are some best practices or top tips that you've employed or you've seen successful innovators employ when trying to listen for the noise, whether it's a, a coming stock market crash or a financial crash we're about, we might have, or another COVID calamity around a new variant or who knows what, how do we start to identify the signals? Well, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a, at best, an agnostic mm -hmm. on the ability to even anticipate any given surprise. Mm -hmm. My counsel would always be, um, look, if one of my one of my many many bad habits is I occasionally watch trash TV, and that includes those shows where they interview preppers for disaster, right? And it's funny how each prepper always has a very vivid disaster that they're preparing for, right? Like they've got this family here in some state that I won't offend the people listening. <laughs> to this call who are probably in and so I'm not going to name the state but they're in a particular state in America and they're like what are you getting ready for and they're like I'm sure you know the uh, Yosemite is going to blow up and make a super volcano and I'm going to be ready for the super volcano mm -hmm. I, I don't want to anticipate any given thing I want you to anticipate surprise as a feature of your professional and mm. personal existence for the foreseeable future. Mm. And that means you take prudent steps like Nassim Taleb talks about in anti-fragility and things like that, where, where, where you, you basically accept that you don't wanna be like the sort of Damocles hanging over your head where one small change means death, right? So don't be fragile. And most people think the opposite of fragile, of course, is robust. Mm -hmm. Um, which means you, you're like the phoenix, you rise from the ashes. But what you actually want to be, in Greek myth terms anyway, is like the hydra. You cut the head off the hydra, it grows too. You actively profit from disorder. And it's to think about business models and investing strategies that simply accept, I don't need to anticipate what the specific surprise is, but I do need to recognize that I am living in a time of enormous change. And a lot of the things that, I, that we all take for granted are going to be shockingly swept away. Um, that, that would be my, my main counsel. Then... I would think less about 
how you personally can anticipate change and more about uh, what's known in, in, in business school talk as effectuation, which is if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you don't start with a top-down study of Nigeria has this many citizens of whom half are male and of that subsection, this many wear glasses. Therefore, the market for glasses for men in Nigeria this year is X. That top-down nonsense doesn't work in a time of enormous change. What effectuation allows is you to say, hold on, who am I? What do I have? What do I know? Whom do I know? And what can I do now to test a hypothesis I have about what sells or what works? So be thinking about, oh my gosh, I'm surprised, not what do I do, but instead, what can I do? And it sounds like a linguistic game, but it is reasonably empowering to say the onus is not on me to anticipate what the change will be, but it's more to actively think entrepreneurial on an individual or corporate level. Who are we? What do we have? What can we do? Whom do we know? And pivot personally. Milo, Milo, I've got a question. When you think about um, a strategic surprise, I want to I want to bring down bring you into the, the zone of culture for a second because I think you alluded to it earlier on, uh, but not just company culture or, or country culture. Um, and I'll give you an example of what I mean. So if you take uh, India, um, let's talk about the east and the west. You take India um, as a, as a country. There's this concept of jagar. There's a term that you would have heard of, which in English we might, I don't know what the word is in English, actually. The only thing I, word I can think of is creativity. Uh, so it's, again, nomenclature. Language has a big role to play. So when you talked about language earlier on and you used um, uh, different terminology, actually, when, you, when you're bilingual, as, as, as we all know, uh, the, the words are different and the meanings are different. Right. And so it's, as I was, I'm a bilingual chap as well. So I was thinking about words and thinking about English and I was thinking, well, if that was said in Hindi, how would it work and what's its meaning? And it's quite fascinating. It's a quite a fascinating thing. Now, um, when you think about strategic surprise and anticipating and you think about being prepared, I think you, what you're saying is have all the tools around you, know that uncertainty is there, know that uh, surprise will come So get yourself ready you know get yourself ready and be open to change and so on and so forth and i think we're hearing that again and again it's mm -hmm. it's there's one thing that's clear over the last 30 or 40 episodes and we've had almost 40 different minds uh experts thought leaders authors economists philosophers the whole lot and there's one consistent thread if you were if you were to ask us which is uh, no one really knows what the hell's going to happen next mm -hmm. but one thing's for sure it's there's going to be shed load of change personal, professional, geopolitical, I think we've all accepted that. That's If that's the one basic takeaway, it's that. Now, what you're saying is get prepared. Have you seen in your research, because I know you teach um, at a business school as well, have you seen any nuances in a certain country or a certain uh, cultural background having a, a positive or negative effect? Is someone ahead of the curve or behind the curve in terms of uh, their cultural dynamics to, to, to do what you've just described? Um, yes, I think so. But there's a lot to unpack there. So if I forget to end up answering your question, remind me. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. let me unpack a couple of things. So I live in Poland right now. Um, and before that, I lived in Italy and before that, uh, Belgium and before that, London. So I've, I've lived outside the United States almost half my life and certainly half my adult life. Um, and I have to say, 
in this world, in many ways, the United Americans are at a profound disadvantage mm-hmm. um, for the simple reason that we are 4% of the world's population, 4%, with roughly a quarter of the world's wealth, depending on how you slice it. Call it 20% of the world's wealth. And like all people in that circumstance, we're, we're uh, what Edward Ludwak calls um, strategically autistic. We literally can't hear what other nations and peoples say to us. If you look at, so, so and I, I don't want to get too much off the track here, but part of my uh, diagnosis of how to at least get slightly better at anticipating strategic surprise is to stress the practical value of diversity on teams, cognitive diversity. Um, if you look at debates about diversity in the American intelligence community, they seem completely obsessed with essentially wokeness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're defining diversity in, oh, gee, you know, maybe we need to do more that talks about this particular American category or that particular American category. But guess what? Most of the world doesn't know and doesn't care. They define their identities in very different ways. And I would be far more concerned if you want to understand the world that you're recruiting genuinely, if you're an international business and you're, you, you, you have a very strong Nash, um, corporate culture, you've got to somehow give voice to people who understand your local markets. But if you're the United States, you're living in a world in which our poor people are fat, okay? News for you. Poor people in a lot of the world don't have money for food. Mm-hmm. That's one of the definitions of poor. Mm-hmm. Poor people aren't fat. And oh, by the way, when you, I worked for a major American company and learned the fascinating fact that the fastest growing apparel category in American retail for the last 10 years on which Americans spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year is what? Anybody know? Halloween costumes for pets. What? (laughs) Yes. For pets. For pets. You dress up your cat to look like a witch or whatever on Halloween. Now, that's probably charming. But if you're a society Mm -hmm. that literally can spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year on that sort of stuff. Your, mm-hmm. your ability to understand what it's actually like to live on $2 a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. You want to understand the pressures on Xi Jinping? Look, China, we all visit China and we go to Beijing and Shanghai and places like that. By the way, um, there are 600 million people in China who live at an income level, level of Bolivia or below. Okay, 600 million. It is not a rich country, but we don't visit those parts. And so when you're thinking about the Chinese market, you come in and you multiply everything by 1.3 billion. Mm-hmm. But if you're Xi Jinping, you got to divide everything by 1.3 billion. And that's mm-hmm. a very different perspective mm-hmm. on how you're going to approach problems. Uh, as I say, like all aristocrats, Americans are sort of a little bit dumb about understanding the rest of the world. And we won't even get into 
questions, as you say, like language. Mm -hmm. But languages have deep, deep psychological consequences. To mm -hmm. give you a trivial example, there are two colors for blue in Russian. Sini and Siri. We call them light blue and dark blue. They see them two different colors. Mm -hmm. And you don't think that really matters, but there, there was a very interesting study that um, a man who wrote a book that draws on mine, which is a better book than mine, actually, called uh, Rebel Ideas by Matthew Said. Mm -hmm. Strongly recommend it. The first chapter does touch on my work very kindly. But he cites a study done in 2001 where they showed Japanese people and Americans exactly the same image, uh, cartoon image, of what I as an American saw as a fish tank with three fish. And then he, they said to each group, tell me, about the, tell me about this picture. The Americans overwhelmingly said, having been shown the, the picture for 10 seconds, said, or the image for 10 mm -hmm. seconds, there are three fish swimming in the middle. Uh, mm -hmm. There are three fish swimming in a tank and the middle one is the smallest. Mm -hmm. Japanese people overwhelmingly said, well, it's an underwater scene. And for some reason, the water's green. So exactly the same image, mm -hmm. different cultures mm -hmm. notice entirely different stuff. Mm -hmm. So as your previous guests would have related, that there are real information processing consequences to the language you speak, but mm -hmm. then translate that into the houses you live in, the food you eat, and so on. And you realize why if the world seems confusing, it's especially confusing to people who live in a bubble that has enough wealth to spend on Halloween costumes for pets. Mm -hmm. I'm making no judgment, by the way, mm -hmm. of, of how you dress your pet. So is, is the East better prepared versus the West? Uh, well, remember, East and West are Western constructs. They're, there's no such thing as Asia in Asia until the West came along and said, oh, by the way. Yeah. Um, uh, everybody start in Japan, come on down through China, take you in Indonesia, keep going, gonna pick up uh, Thailand, uh, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, uh, Myanmar, Pakistan, uh, India, Nepal, Burma. Oh, by the way, somewhere around about, let's call it Pakistan, we're gonna call that the Middle East now but all the rest Asia, these, these cultures. <laughs> okay, so, so that aside, I think cultures that are, uh, my biggest geopolitical worry is that digital technologies give structural advantage to authoritarian, what we call, and indeed are, authoritarian political systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, that's a concern. I happen to think the West has virtues, uh, but, but we are in a, in, in a time of great change, at least in the short term, many of the West's virtues, um, free inquiry, free exchange of ideas, etc., can be disadvantages. And in the meantime, the East gathers, gathers strength. Now, now, Af, you and I are both part of something called the Center for the Study of Digital Life, and the metaphor that, that Mark Stallman uses there is this 
and it's only a metaphor, please note, that you can conceive of digital technologies as a sort of alien landing, this, this strange technology that's appeared. Mm-hmm. Only a metaphor. And the East, namely, especially China, are rushing to make use of this new technology. And the West is rushing to make use of this new technology. But the West is doing so without understanding or that technology has, it's not neutral. It, it has profound psychological and social and political effects. And you won't understand what's going on until you admit that every sec- technology changes under the impact of that technology. Now, th- which is why I was saying America plus smartphones is not the same America. It's, it's a different America. Um, you've heard me say before, you know, one way to think about the Trump phenomenon is Trump is Uber. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it, what did Uber do? Uber used digital technologies mm. to go over the head of incumbent service providers, taxi companies, to, to speak with and communicate with and serve people who felt underserved by incumbent service providers. Mm-hmm. And Trump <laughs> used Twitter and Facebook and digital technologies to go over the head of incumbent service providers, the old fashioned mm-hmm. previous Democrat and Republican parties to speak directly to an audience that arguably felt underserved and aggrieved mm-hmm. by the incumbent service providers. Mm-hmm. Now, then, you know, one taxi company did, did did join did join Uber, so to speak, uh, at least part of it, and and they're still fighting it out. But but the point is, you can't introduce people. When I was in business school in 1996 to 1998, people loved the phrase <clears throat> disruption and disruptive innovation. And one of the things you've got to realize is, it's not just about taxi companies. Digital technology changes everything. Uh, And that's internally and inside nations and outside Mm -hmm. nations. Let's say you're a developing country. Let's say you're Bangladesh. And you want to do what China did, because arguably the Chinese people have done a magnificent job in the last 30 years pulling hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And you say, we want to do that. So you, you send a study group and you look into, well, how did they do it? Mm-hmm. And you, it turns out that they start with three technologies or three industries that the South Koreans used and the Taiwanese used and so on. And those three industries are shoe manufacturing, electronics assembly, and textiles. So you say, wow, that's what we're going to do. We are going to use our cheap labor to climb up the value chain just like the Chinese did. But then someone explains, yeah, yeah, but the, the Chinese did it in a different world. Yeah. In particular, they did it in an analog world. And Adidas opened factories for 3D printing shoes in <clears> Germany <throat> and the United States a couple of years ago. You're not going to need poor people to make shoes as much as you used to. So that's out. And then you look at electronics assembly and you look at advances in robotics and say, well, you know, maybe, but gosh, robots are getting pretty good at doing whatever the human hand can do. So maybe that's out. 
Ah, but there's still textiles, right? You still see photos of all those women in front of sewing machines. But look into a company called Sobo, S-E-W-B-O. Sobo didn't invent some fancy robot that likes cloth because robots hate cloth because it's floppy, right? Sobo just invented a substance that you dip cloth in and let it dry and then it hardens like a sheet of metal. And then a robot can cut the shirt mm. and finish the shirt and sew the shirt and everything. Whoa. And you dip it in a different substance and the shirt's floppy again and it costs 50 cents less in Walmart and you're thrilled because you didn't have to employ people halfway around the world who are very poor and have disturbing images and people question your labor policies of your suppliers. It mm. can all be done with robots. That's great. Until you ask, okay, what's the ladder that people are going to climb mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in the developing world to climb to to move up, mm -hmm. not as individuals, but as nations. Mm -hmm. What's the value chain? Do we need all those poor people? And oh, by the way, the one other thing advantage China has that isn't had that isn't talked about is um, you can you can condemn the communists for a lot, but they sure as heck made sure literacy was widespread. They had almost 100% literacy mm -hmm. and that's across both genders. Mm -hmm. And I don't see many people in the developing world sort of saying the path to development is educating all our young girls in basic literacy. Mm -hmm. Some do, but it's not an entirely popular position. Mm -hmm. So lots of problems with applying the China model mm -hmm. in the digital world and expecting that to, to bring people out of poverty. Sorry to get off on that track, but I thought it's important. It's one of the big assumptions people have yeah. that everybody a, can do what China did. And I don't think yeah. it stands up. In the it's digital. a really interesting thread that you're pulling on. And I want to also um, just remind the audience, if you have any questions for Milo, now's a good time to ask. Mm. We want to get those through to him. Uh, but one of the threads that I keep hearing you pull on today is this whole idea around perception and how perception dictates reality. And so whatever paradigm we're coming from, it might not fit another paradigm if I'm coming from a more Chinese cultural paradigm and trying to retrofit that to a Bangladeshian paradigm, it's, I'm going to have problems, right? Yeah. If I'm trying to do a one-for-one -one equation that way. Um, but also just looking at where my perceptions might be distorted is going to influence how I anticipate anything. Um, so where I'm coming from makes a big difference with my psychology, my emotional intelligence, my uh, mental intelligence, all of it, my experience is all going to dictate my perception. And I so, yeah. Literally, Rick, if I may say, mm -hmm. it even dictates what you think of as rational behavior. Totally. And my biases, my or prejudices, morality. morality, all of it, my values. An American finds it, we take for granted impartial institutions. Mm -hmm. yeah. The very idea that, you know, okay, certain small Southern towns aside, you pretty much expect that even if your brother-in-law is a cop, mm -hmm. you're going to have to obey the speed limit. Yeah, mm -hmm. there, There's certain impartiality. Mm -hmm. But when you're the HR director in the, develop, the developing world, as we call it, and you know we can question that adjective, um, it doesn't, you can't sell as many bonds. For, you can't sell third world bonds as well as you can sell emerging market or developing world bonds. But different question. But anyway, if you're in the developing world, and let's say it's your job to give out, you're an HR director, you've got 10 jobs to give out. By our perceptions of morality, you give them out to 
a really weird thing. Really weird people. You give them out to qualified strangers. <laughs> right. You would betray your family? Right. Your wife's or your, your, your wife's brother? You had a job to give out and you didn't give it to your wife's brother? What kind of monster are you? Mm-hmm. People you've known your whole life. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a good point. It's not that, so so what, it took me a long time living overseas, as I call it, to, to realize it's not that the rest of the world isn't like us. It's we're not like the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. If you're the kind of person who listens to Straight Talk Live, <clears throat> you're not like the rest of the world. You're, you're, you're better. Okay, we, we, we take that. But truly, you're educated. Mm-hmm. You're intelligent. You're online. You're thinking about the future. Mm-hmm. And that's good. But try to have contact with those who, mm-hmm. who inhabit literally almost different universes mm-hmm. on the basis of their identities and cultures. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it will protect you and it will also enrich your life, by the way. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, Milo... So tell us a little bit about this concept of urgency <clears throat> um, and it's a similar thread to the culture, cultural piece. But I feel like in the UK, again, you know, this is straight talk life. So we say what we need to say here. Uh, no holds barred. I feel I, I, can, I can speak from my side, the country I live in. So in the UK for a long while, we're going through our own sort of uh, debacle with uh, the Brexit situation and, and, and so on. And of course, the pandemic has put a lot of stress on the economy. But I feel oh, is there a pandemic? Of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, just in case we forgot. Over the last, what, five or seven years, especially since I've gone into entrepreneurship, I felt that um, the people that have been around me, surrounding me, direct, indirect, especially in the technology world, in the business world and so on and so forth, corporates, entrepreneurs, investors, the whole lot, you know, this is concept of, and I, maybe I'm just being, um, I'm being um, super direct here. I feel that our tummies are full here. Um, there's an abundance of everything. And I think you touched on it before when you talked about the, the fastest selling product um, for, for the, the, one of your clients. And our tummies are full and therefore the sense of urgency to do anything different um, is scarce. It's hard to find someone who has that sense of optimistic urgency can get up and say, right, let's make things happen. Let's do it. Uh, yeah, it's going to be hard, but we're going to make it happen. That drive, that hunger, whatever, whatever term you want to use. And I don't know if that is, uh, and I do think that, by the way, the positive is that this is changing after the pandemic because we're going through really low points. Unemployment's high, people are struggling, they're thinking of new skills. You know, I talk to a lot of my close friends and family about this, of course, to say, listen, ramp up your skills, think about the gig economy. You've got to do things differently if you lose your, jo- lose your job tomorrow and so on and so forth. And so I'm hoping there's going to be some sort of a renaissance, a revival of, you know, the entrepreneurship mindset where you're like, I've got to, I've got to make it happen. I've got to feed the family. I've got to probably do three jobs. I've got to think about a new skill. I'll learn Python part-time, maybe get into a bit of code coding and so on and so forth. Um, and maybe it takes generations to get to that point. Uh, talk us through, maybe it's through your book. Maybe it's through books that you're um, working on, books that you're reading, the academic side of your existence. And I know you do a bunch of other things in terms of advisory roles. And of course, the fact that we're part of the center and, and other things that we have commonality over. Do you think there is hope that the West in particular, uh, and I'm the gross general, generalization, will see a resurgence in urgency 
And maybe that could be hope because people will force, it'll, be, it'll force people to think differently, to blend with other cultures, to accept other cultures because it's a way out. It's a, or it's a way towards some sort of a brighter future. Because uh, until, until now, there's been no need for us right. to change because well, our tummies have been full. Perhaps. Um, the, the problem is, one of the problems, I believe, might be uh, we don't, we, we are so wealthy that work provides something else besides income. I mean, people, people love this idea, for example, of universal basic income. So yeah. let's just say that's affordable. There, there was a very sad study done uh, of universal basic income and the effects of it in the United States that for some reason isn't talked about, maybe because it's depressing and it flies in the face of how do we mm. handle mm. Uh, the question that large numbers of people might be put out of work by digital technologies. Because I know, I know, technologies always create jobs in the long run. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine, but in the long run, we're all dead. And if you look at the historical record, they don't create jobs for the people they put out of work, they create jobs for the next generation, right? Yeah. And there's also yeah. something called the Engels pause. Yes, that Engels, friend of Marx. Uh, and it takes about, it took about 90 years for the British working class to actually gain from the productivity, to gain income from the productivity gains of the industrial revolution. So, so the, the technological optimists who say, don't worry, technology creates jobs in the long run, really haven't thought it through and don't know their history. <clears throat> uh, so there's that point. But then you say, well, maybe universal basic income is the answer to finding uh, meaning. Mm. And what was quite depressing is a huge unintended experiment in universal basic income has been performed. And it was performed in my country and Rick's country. And that is, uh, it happened in Native American reservations. Mm. Over the last 30 years, the way it works for those who don't know is gambling was illegal in most of the United States, but the one place that it's been permitted is Native American reservations. Right. So sociologists and economists and, and health professionals and so on have been able to look at what happens when you have a traditionally, frankly, quite poor community and you add two things, a source of jobs that many people could do, you know, because these casinos have hotels and they need maids and bartenders and croupiers and all that stuff. So there's a source of jobs there. And of course, the reservation, the tribe shares the income from the casino. So it's win-win, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you would expect alcoholism, drug addiction, divorce, suicide, all the things I think we can agree uh, are indicators of unhappy people mm -hmm. to go down. Mm -hmm. They didn't. They go up. It takes a depressingly small amount of money to make most people say, eh, I don't want that job. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'll just I'll get some income from the casino and play mm -hmm. my Xbox and I'm done. So you look at all the traditional indicators of a healthy community. And when you have a, what amounts to a universal basic income, it goes down. Now, there's 
some people would say, oh, but that's because it's based on an immoral industry or whatever. But I happen to think it turns out that jobs give people meaning and dignity and purpose that far outstrips mm -hmm. the ability mm -hmm. of people just to consume yep. more calories. That's and good. when you're not given that social structure of dignity mm -hmm. and a culture that allows you to tap that, um, income alone won't cut it. So when what I'm coming at your question is, do I think, do I have hope for the West to reinvent itself? The answer is probably it's too soon to tell. It will certainly involve though, a new search for identities and cultures and meaning, not a technocratic fix based on sociological assumptions of the 1970s at best, right? Yeah. Which is how most governments execute programs. Um, and by the way, you said, Af, the unemployment rates very high as a result of the pandemic, but the very idea of an unemployment rate, the very idea of employment is relatively recent mm -hmm. in historical terms. And most people from most of human existence didn't have careers and mm -hmm. they certainly didn't have to repurpose several times in their lives and learn new stuff. People who listen to calls like this want to learn new stuff and they can learn Python and so on, all that stuff. But most people, honestly, that sounds like a living nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Truly, they don't want to have to learn new stuff. Mm -hmm. they, they, they know what learning looks like because mm -hmm. they had an analog form of school. Remember, mm -hmm. schools were designed when knowledge was in those things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so finding the right answer meant you were a smart person. And in the digital world, answers are easy. And mm -hmm. it's the ability, again, coming back to strategic surprise, it's the ability to formulate the right questions that lets mm -hmm. you separate signals from noise. Mm -hmm. You know, Alexa, oh, I better not say it. She's going to start talking. Those digital assistants listen and will give you the answer to many things the key is what should you ask right. them right. so we've got That's a good point flip education mm -hmm. and begin to judge smart by your ability to formulate questions not your ability to fetch answers for other people and yeah. so if there yeah. are any parents listening to this call i urge you to simply ask your kids one question and one question only after each day at school which is did you ask any good questions? Hmm. And literally, they're going to say, what are you talking about? I don't want to look like an idiot. And what does that say mm -hmm. about educational culture where you get in trouble and get teased mm -hmm. and are told, shut up and answer my questions? What does that say? That that's not preparation for the digital world. Now, of course, yep. Is a need to learn certain basic facts, mm -hmm. but increasingly we've got to get out of the idea that's, that intelligence is measured by your ability to answer other people's questions. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's ask great. the right questions, and you'll be fine. Mm. Spend your there's there's no right answer to the wrong questions, mm -hmm. and um, we've got to get better at reframing what even constitutes intelligence. Mm -hmm. It's just like an intelligence agency. Where do we point the satellites? Yeah. Where do we sense. send the spies? Mm -hmm. Whom do we recruit? 
what do we actually need to know? Mm. Those are the hard questions. And if you get them wrong, all the rest of what you're doing, it won't matter. Mm. There's not an industry people are, every, I don't care mm. what industry <clears throat> you're in on this call. Conceive of digital technologies more than Facebook or, or media. The, the acronym I'll give you is three grain, nice and healthy, like three grain bread, right? 3D printing, genetic technologies enabled by digital, robotics or automation, artificial intelligence, the internet of things or big data and nanotechnology or material science. Throw in some quantum computing and you have unimagined industries and change coming over whatever business you're in like a steamroller. Mm -hmm. Accept it. You are a record shop in 1975. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Three grain. What business you're in. That's what you are. That's great. So be scared. Yeah. <clears throat> no, and, and, and just the think tip to the future there. I want to ask one question from Fatima in our audience. Uh, Fatima, good to see you back here again. She asks, and we just have a couple minutes. So just to get to the heart of it, Milo, what advice do you have specifically for Gen Z that would help them navigate strategic surprises? So for the up and coming generation, what would you tell them? Okay. Uh, honestly, it's cruel. That's what Don't you tell them. This. Don't read this. <laughs> Don't read this. See how it's black? Read those. Read books. Real books. Written by dead people. <laughs> to, 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 to compete is not to imitate. <clears throat> I don't know a successful person who is not an avid reader. And okay, yes, you can read it on a Kindle or whatever. But the point is, learn to read and think deeply. You cannot sustain yourself eating popcorn and bubblegum physically and these things on an information mm. basis pretty much serve up popcorn and bubblegum. Mm. You have got to read and think deeply. And just because somebody's long dead, the fact that their ideas have survived for hundreds or thousands of years might tell you that that's more than bias. Mm. It's because the ideas are valuable. And you know, you might see some parallels in the past that shed light on the future. You are not gonna learn about the future only by reading science fiction. You are going to have to anticipate the future by looking at the past. Mm -hmm. When you think about technology, use what we call at the center, McLuhan's tetrad. Every a tetrad is Latin for something with four parts. Mm -hmm. Every technology makes things obsolete. Everybody gets that. Every technology enhances some things, and that's why it makes some things obsolete. Everybody gets that. That's where most business analysts get off the bus. Mm -hmm. McLuhan's Tetrad says there are two other things you need to look at. <clears throat> what happens when this really spreads? What does it reverse into when everybody's doing it? Cars initially made travel faster, but now we end up with traffic jams. Mm -hmm. The internet initially made information widely available. Now we have information overload. Mm -hmm. What does it reverse into? Mm -hmm. And then finally, most interestingly to me is, what does it retrieve? Humans change under the impact of technology, but some things stay the same. And what analogs and parallels 
can you find in past societies that are retrieved by this new technology? Hmm. Um, and so if you want to understand the future, do read about the past, but and, substantive mm -hmm. things. And Milo, with our last remaining minute here, uh, we have a couple audience members asking, can you recommend one or two books that you think would help them navigate par these paradigmatic shifts and to be a little more prepared for new world systems? Sure. I'm going to offer you three. I'll, I'll completely disinterested. Um, the first one, honestly, Matthew Said's book explains my ideas more clearly than I ever did. My book is dry as burnt toast. Don't read it. Okay. Constructing Cassandra. Don't read it. Boring. Matthew Said's rebel ideas is good. Next book, strategic surprise and anticipating the future is more than a psychological question, mm -hmm. but Philip Tetlock's book, Super Forecasting, is very good. Better forecasting is a skill you can learn. Mm. And I do recommend Super Forecasting by Tetlock. For all the limitations, it won't teach you to ask the right questions, but it <clears throat> will teach you a style of thinking that can be helpful. And then finally, Honestly, there is nothing more practical than broad, deep world histories of, of wherever you find them. Mm -hmm. Just learn what the world, what it felt like to be a human being in 5th century Athens or 17th century South Africa or 1st century Nepal come in contact with the varieties of human experience. Mm. It will seem impractical at first, but it will pay dividends in the long run. I passionately believe. Mm. Thank you so much for that. And I just want to give you uh, a one little shout out from Danny on our uh, th thread here. And he says, thank you for having the courage to question, see things as they are. And bigger than that, speaking truths. Milo, so happy to have seen you. Oh, well, that's very kind, and I appreciate this forum, and Rick and Aff's invitation, and Denise's help making the technology work, and of course, all of you for attending, because um, it's been lovely, and I hope it's also been useful. And Milo, uh, where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Uh, I have a Twitter feed that's mostly about intelligence analysis and geopolitics. <clears throat> um, that's uh, at Inveniam, I-N-V-E-N-I-A-M, which comes from... Hannibal supposedly said, although Hannibal spoke Punic, right? Not Latin. But he was quoted by, 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 uh, by Roman authors as saying, Invenium vium aut facium. Remember, he went over the Alps with elephants. Mm -hmm. And that means I shall find a way or I shall make one. Mm -hmm. So at Invenium. At Invenium is the, your, best, is your Twitter, Twitter handle. Is the Twitter <laughs> handle. Or just connect on, um, feel free to reach out on uh, LinkedIn. I, I have a weird go. name. You know, there, you there, you go. there aren't that many Milo Joneses out there. I'm, I'm cousin of Indiana. <laughs> now we uh, actually, he said he's a cousin <laughs> of mine, but, but, but uh, yeah, pretty much. Just Thank for, you. Just for, the, just for the team, for the guests there uh, and the audience, we, we have a speaker page. And mm -hmm. so if you really get lost, then if, very soon the team will be updating the speaker page and we'll have Milo's 
bio links to his um, website and so on and so forth. So you can find him through that too uh, on straighttalk.live. So um, over to you, Rick, to, to close off the proceedings. Milo, fantastic. Thank so, you so Milo, much. thank you again for all of your strategic insights. And I love the idea of just, are we asking the right questions? How do we come back to that in our critical thinking and encouraging our audience to read books, analog style? I love it. Coming back to the important basics that way. Thanks, Rick. The future is analog. The future is analog. And our, and our near future is actually our <laughs> augmented reality and virtual reality, <laughs> which um, it's a nice juxtaposition from today here. And so this is what we're going to get into next week with one of the leading experts, Jeremy Dalton, head of XR at PwC UK. And we're going to really looking at what is reality? How is um, augmented and virtual reality changing the game of how we relate to reality in different advances from the medical industry, healthcare, to education, to all the ways that we're using these technologies to better enhance our understanding of empathy, under, um, each other's experience, et cetera. So this is going to be a fantastic com a conversation next week. Please join us live at Straight Talk. And Jeremy has just launched his book for everyone, um, everyone's benefits, um, Reality Check. It just came out mm -hmm. last month. So he's going to be talking a lot about the findings from his book. Uh, it'll be quite fascinating. So excited about that too. So thank you all again, Milo. We'd love to have you back. Thank you. And, uh, both and all. all you straight talkers, get out there, read a book today and start having those straight talk conversations. Yeah, remember okay. three grain. Three, three. grains. Okay. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Take Bye. care. Bye.